Chapter Three of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End, by E. M. Forster. Chapter Three. Most complacently did Mrs. Munt rehearse her mission. Her nieces were independent young women, and it was not often that she was able to help them. Emily's daughters had never been quite like other girls. They had been left motherless when Tibby was born, when Helen was five and Margaret herself but thirteen. It was before the passing of the deceased wife's sister, Bill, so Mrs. Munt could without impropriety offer to go and keep house at Wickham Place. But her brother-in-law— who was peculiar and a German, had referred the question to Margaret, who with the crudity of youth had answered, No, they could manage much better alone. Five years later Mr. Schlegel had died too, and Mrs. Munt had repeated her offer. Margaret, crude no longer, had been grateful and extremely nice, but the substance of her answer had been the same. I must not interfere a third time, thought Mrs. Munt. However, of course, she did. She learnt to her horror that Margaret, now of age, was taking her money out of the old safe investments, and putting it into foreign things, which always smash. Silence would have been criminal. Her own fortune was invested in home rails, and most ardently did she beg her niece to imitate her. "'Then we should be together, dear.' Margaret, out of politeness, invested a few hundreds in the Nottingham and Derby Railway, and though the foreign things did admirably, and the Nottingham and Derby declined with the steady dignity of which only home rails are capable, Mrs. Munt never ceased to rejoice, and to say, "'I did manage that, at all events. When the smash comes, poor Margaret will have a nest-egg to fall back on.' This year Helen came of age, and exactly the same thing happened in Helen's case. She also would shift her money out of consoles, but she too, almost without being pressed, consecrated a fraction of it to the Nottingham and Derby Railway. So far, so good. But in social matters their aunt had accomplished nothing. Sooner or later the girls would enter on the process known as throwing themselves away, and if they had delayed hitherto, it was only that they must throw themselves more vehemently in the future. They saw too many people at Wickham Place—unshaven musicians, an actress even, German cousins—one knows what foreigners are— acquaintances picked up at continental hotels. One knows what they are, too. It was interesting, and down at Swanage no one appreciated culture more than Mrs. Munt, but it was dangerous, and disaster was bound to come. How right she was, and how lucky to be on the spot when the disaster came! The train sped northward, under innumerable tunnels. It was only an hour's journey— but Mrs. Munt had to raise and lower the window again and again. She passed through the South Wellwyn Tunnel, saw light for a moment, and entered the North Wellwyn Tunnel of tragic fame. She traversed the immense viaduct, whose arches span on troubled meadows, and the dreamy flow of two in water. She skirted the parks of politicians. At times the Great North Road accompanied her, more suggestive of infinity than any railway, 
awakening after a nap of a hundred years, to such life as is conferred by the stench of motor-cars, and to such culture as is implied by the advertisements of antibilious pills. To history, to tragedy, to the past, to the future, Mrs. Munt remained equally indifferent. Hers but to concentrate on the end of her journey, and to rescue poor Helen from this dreadful mess. The station for Howard's End was at Hilton, one of the large villages that are strung so frequently along the North Road, and that owe their size to the traffic of coaching and pre-coaching days. Being near London, it had not shared in the rural decay, and its long high street had butted out right and left into residential estates. For about a mile a series of tiled and slated houses passed before Mrs. Munt's inattentive eyes a series broken at one point by six Danish tumuli that stood shoulder to shoulder along the high road, tombs of soldiers. Beyond these tumuli habitations thickened, and the train came to a standstill in a tangle that was almost a town. The station, like the scenery, like Helen's letters, struck an indeterminate note. Into which country will it lead? England or suburbia? It was new, it had island platforms and a subway, and the superficial comfort exacted by businessmen. But it held hints of local life, personal intercourse, as even Mrs. Munt was to discover. "'I want a house,' she confided to the ticket-boy. "'Its name is Howard's Lodge. Do you know where it is?' "'Mr. Wilcox,' the boy called. A young man in front of them turned round. She's wanting Howard's end. There was nothing for it but to go forward, though Mrs. Munt was too much agitated even to stare at the stranger. But remembering that there were two brothers, she had the sense to say to him, Excuse me asking, but are you the younger Mr. Wilcox, or the elder? The younger. Can I do anything for you? Oh, well, she controlled herself with dignity. Really, are you? I—" She moved herself away from the ticket-boy and lowered her voice. "'I am Miss Schlegel's aunt. I ought to introduce myself, oughtn't I? My name is Mrs. Munt.' She was conscious that he raised his cap and said quite coolly, "'Oh, rather. Miss Schlegel is stopping with us. Did you want to see her?' "'Possibly. I'll call you a cab. No, wait a mo,' he thought. Our motor's here. I'll run you up in it. Oh, that is very kind. Not at all. If you'll just wait till they bring out a parcel from the office. This way. My niece is not with you by any chance. No, I came over with my father. He has gone on north in your train. You'll see Miss Schlegel at lunch. You're coming up to lunch, I hope. I should like to come up, said Mrs. Munt not committing herself to nourishment until she had studied Helen's lover a little more. He seemed a gentleman, but had so rattled her round that her powers of observation were numbed. She glanced at him stealthily. To a feminine eye there was nothing amiss in the sharp depressions at the corners of his mouth, nor in the rather box-like construction of his forehead. He was dark, clean-shaven, and seemed accustomed to command. "'In front or behind? Which do you prefer?' It may be windy in front. In front, if I may, then we can talk. But excuse me one moment. I can't think what they're doing with that parcel. 
He strode into the booking office and called with a new voice. "'Hi! Hi, you there! Are you going to keep me waiting all day? Parcel for Wilcox, Howard's End. Just look sharp!' Emerging, he said in quieter tones, "'This station's abominably organized. If I had my way, the whole lot of them should get the sack. May I help you in?' "'This is very good of you,' said Mrs. Munt, as she settled herself into a luxurious cavern of red leather, and suffered her person to be padded with rugs and shawls. She was more civil than she had intended, but really this young man was very kind. Moreover, she was a little afraid of him. His self-possession was extraordinary. "'Very good, indeed,' she repeated, adding, "'It is just what I should have wished.' "'Very good of you to say so.' he replied, with a slight look of surprise, which, like most slight looks, escaped Mrs. Munt's attention. "'I was just tooling my father over to catch the down train.' "'You see, we heard from Helen this morning.' Young Wilcox was pouring in petrol, starting his engine, and performing other actions with which this story has no concern. The great car began to rock, and the form of Mrs. Munt, trying to explain things, sprang agreeably up and down among the red cushions. "'The Major will be very glad to see you,' he mumbled. "'Hi, I say! Parcel for Howard's End! Bring it out! Hi!' A bearded porter emerged with the parcel in one hand and an entry-book in the other. With the gathering whir of the motor these ejaculations mingled. "'Sign, must I? Why the—should I sign, after all this bother? Not even got a pencil on you? Remember, next time I report you to the station-master. My time's of value, though yours mayn't be. Here. Here being a tip. Extremely sorry, Mrs. Munt. Not at all, Mr. Wilcox. And do you object to going through the village? It is rather a longer spin, but I have one or two commissions. I should love going through the village. Naturally, I am very anxious to talk things over with you. As she said this, she felt ashamed, for she was disobeying Margaret's instructions only disobeying them in the letter, surely. Margaret had only warned her against discussing the incident with outsiders. Surely it was not uncivilized or wrong to discuss it with the young man himself, since chance had thrown them together. A reticent fellow, he made no reply. Mounting by her side, he put on gloves and spectacles, and off they drove, the bearded porter—life is a mysterious business—looking after them with admiration. The wind was in their faces down the station road, blowing the dust into Mrs. Munt's eyes. But as soon as they turned into the great north road, she opened fire. "'You can well imagine,' she said, "'that the news was a great shock to us.' "'What news?' "'Mr. Wilcox,' she said frankly, "'Margaret has told me everything, everything. I have seen Helen's letter.' He could not look her in the face as his eyes were fixed on his work. He was travelling as quickly as he dared down the high street. But he inclined his head in her direction, and said, "'I beg your pardon. I didn't catch.' "'About Helen. Helen, of course. Helen is a very exceptional person. I am sure you will let me say this, feeling towards her as you do. Indeed, all the Schlegels are exceptional. I come in no spirit of interference, but it was a great shock.' They drew up outside a draper's. Without replying, he turned round in his seat, and contemplated the cloud of dust that they had raised in their passage through the village. It was settling again, 
but not all into the road from which he had taken it. Some of it had percolated through the open windows, some had whitened the roses and gooseberries of the wayside gardens, while a certain proportion had entered the lungs of the villagers. "'I wonder when they'll learn wisdom and tar the roads,' was his comment. Then a man ran out of the drapers with a roll of oilcloth, and off they went again. "'Margaret could not come herself, on account of poor Tibby, so I am here to represent her, and to have a good talk.' "'I'm sorry to be so dense,' said the young man, again drawing up outside a shop. "'But I still haven't quite understood.' "'Helen, Mr. Wilcox, my niece, and you.' He pushed up his goggles and gazed at her, absolutely bewildered. Horror smote her to the heart, for even she began to suspect that they were at cross-purposes, and that she had commenced her mission by some hideous blunder. "'Miss Schlegel and myself,' he asked, compressing his lips. "'I trust there has been no misunderstanding,' quavered Mrs. Munt. "'Her letter certainly read that way.' "'What way?' that you and she—' She paused, then drooped her eyelids. "'I think I catch your meaning,' he said stickily. "'What an extraordinary mistake!' "'Then you didn't the least,' she stammered, getting blood-red in the face and wishing she had never been born. "'Scarcely, as I am already engaged to another lady.' There was a moment's silence, and then he caught his breath and exploded with— Oh, good God! Don't tell me it's some silliness of Paul's. But you are Paul. I'm not. Then why did you say so at the station? I said nothing of the sort. I beg your pardon, you did. I beg your pardon, I did not. My name is Charles. Younger may mean son as opposed to father, or second brother as opposed to first. There is much to be said for either view, and later on they said it, but they had other questions before them now. "'Do you mean to tell me that Paul?' But she did not like his voice. He sounded as if he was talking to a porter, and certain that he had deceived her at the station, she too grew angry. "'Do you mean to tell me that Paul and your niece—' Mrs. Munt, such is human nature— determined that she would champion the lovers. She was not going to be bullied by a severe young man. "'Yes, they care for one another very much indeed,' she said. "'I dare say they will tell you about it by and by. We heard this morning.' And Charles clenched his fist and cried, "'The idiot! The idiot! The little fool!' Mrs. Munt tried to divest herself of her rugs. "'If that is your attitude, Mr. Wilcox, I prefer to walk.' "'I beg you will do no such thing. I'll take you up this moment to the house. Let me tell you, the thing is impossible, and must be stopped.' Mrs. Munt did not often lose her temper, and when she did it was only to protect those whom she loved. On this occasion she blazed out. "'I quite agree, sir. The thing is impossible, and I will come up and stop it. My niece is a very exceptional person, and I am not inclined to sit still while she throws herself away on those who will not appreciate her. Charles worked his jaws. Considering she has only known your brother since Wednesday, and only met your father and mother at a stray hotel, could you possibly lower your voice? The shopman will overhear. Esprit de classe, if one may coin the phrase, 
was strong in Mrs. Munt. She sat quivering while a member of the lower orders deposited a metal funnel, a saucepan, and a garden squirt beside the roll of oilcloth. "'Right behind?' "'Yes, sir.' And the lower orders vanished in a cloud of dust. "'I warn you, Paul hasn't a penny. It's useless.' "'No need to warn us, Mr. Wilcox, I assure you. The warning is all the other way. My niece has been very foolish, and I shall give her a good scolding and take her back to London with me.' "'He has to make his way out in Nigeria. He couldn't think of marrying for years, and when he does it must be a woman who can stand the climate, and is in other ways—why hasn't he told us? Of course he's ashamed. He knows he's been a fool. And so he has—a damned fool.' She grew furious. "'Whereas Miss Schlegel has lost no time in publishing the news.' "'If I were a man, Mr. Wilcox, for that last remark, I'd box your ears. You're not fit to clean my niece's boots, to sit in the same room with her, and you dare—you actually dare—oh, I decline to argue with such a person. All I know is she's spread the thing, and he hasn't, and my father's away, and I—and all that I know is—might I finish my sentence, please?' No. Charles clenched his teeth and sent the motor swerving all over the lane. She screamed. So they played the game of capping families, a round of which is always played when love would unite two members of our race. But they played it with unusual vigor, stating in so many words that Schlegels were better than Wilcox's, Wilcox's better than Schlegels. They flung decency aside. The man was young, the woman deeply stirred. In both a vein of coarseness was latent. Their quarrel was no more surprising than our most quarrels, inevitable at the time, incredible afterwards. But it was more than usually futile. A few minutes, and they were enlightened. The motor drew up at Howard's end, and Helen, looking very pale, ran out to meet her aunt. "'Aunt Julie, I have just had a telegram from Margaret. I—I I meant to stop your coming. It isn't—it's over.' The climax was too much for Mrs. Munt. She burst into tears. "'Oh, Aunt Julie, dear, don't! Don't let them know I've been so silly. It wasn't anything. Do bear up for my sake.' "'Paul!' cried Charles Wilcox, pulling his gloves off. "'Don't let them know. They are never to know.' "'Oh, my darling Helen!' "'Paul! Paul!' A very young man came out of the house. "'Paul, is there any truth in this?' "'I didn't. I don't.' "'Yes or no, man. Plain question, plain answer. Did or didn't Miss Schlegel?' "'Charles, dear,' said a voice from the garden. "'Charles, dear Charles, one doesn't ask plain questions. There aren't such things.' They were all silent. It was Mrs. Wilcox. She approached just as Helen's letter had described her, trailing noiselessly over the lawn, and there was actually a wisp of hay in her hands. She seemed to belong not to the young people and their motor, but to the house, and to the tree that overshadowed it. One knew that she worshipped the past, and that the instinctive wisdom the past can alone bestow had descended upon her, that wisdom to which we give the clumsy name of aristocracy. High-born she might not be, but assuredly she cared about her ancestors, and let them help her. When she saw Charles angry, Paul frightened, and Mrs. Munt in tears, 
she heard her ancestors say, "'Separate those human beings who will hurt each other most. The rest can wait.' So she did not ask questions. Still less did she pretend that nothing had happened, as a competent society hostess would have done. She said, "'Miss Schlegel, would you take your aunt up to your room, or to my room, whichever you think best? Paul, do find Evie, and tell her lunch for six, but I'm not sure whether we shall all be downstairs for it.' And when they had obeyed her, she turned to her elder son, who still stood in the throbbing, stinking car, and smiled at him with tenderness, and without a word, turned away from him towards her flowers. "'Mother!' he called. "'Are you aware that Paul has been playing the fool again?' "'It's all right, dear. They have broken off the engagement.' "'Engagement?' "'They do not love any longer, if you prefer it put that way,' said Mrs. Wilcox, stooping down to smell a rose. End of chapter 3